0: All right, uh, you know, we got a lot to cover, so I'm going to move right into our text here tonight. I think that kind of takes up a lot. We'll get to Operation Andrew and missionary updates next week. We're in Judges chapter 13, not Matthew 7, which is where my Bible's at right now. Judges chapter 13. And I told you last week, as we did our introduction <clears throat> to Samson, that the story of Samson is one of the strangest in the entire Bible. And to really truly understand this, you kind of have to kind of set aside some of our Sunday school things that you envision, you know, this burly guy with long hair. And... Here was a man who seemed to have a lot of privileges and advantages that really could have and probably should have set him up to be one of the greatest judges of all time. We'll talk about that as we walk through that. But this is the story of the life of a man who is so richly anointed with the potential for blessing and victory, and yet his life is marked with disgrace and some spiritual defeat. But he had all the advantages. He really did, even before he was born. Samson was to be a leader in Israel. He was to be God's instrument to deliver his people. But unfortunately, his walk with God was erratic at best and marked with far too infrequent contact with God, to say the very least. Now, how could it be that somebody with all of these advantages given to them by God could easily fall so short of the potential that God has for them? And that's what we want to look at tonight as we continue our look here at the life of Samson the Nazarite. Now, let's look quickly at the background we pulled. We only got through one verse, I think, last time, Judges 13, verse 1. So let's look at that together, Judges 13. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. 40 years. Did you see that? 40 years. Now this is the seventh time that we have seen this repeated pattern, isn't it? Seven times now where they have done evil in the sight of the Lord. We looked at all those last week, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10. But this time the Lord gets them over to the Philistines. You remember that. The Philistines are seafaring people from uh, Greece around the Aegean Sea area. Then uh, they got booted out of that country and they uh, landed in Egypt. They thought they would be big and tough and take on Egypt. Egypt. Uh, squashed them, sent them. They landed up in southern Palestine. And uh, it says here, and they established five major cities. Do you remember those five cities when we were uh, going through Second Samuel? We'll really test your memory here, right? All right, I won't make you say them again. Anyway, they had five major cities, and they had a lord over each city. And our text tells us, again, they oppressed the Israelites for 40 years. But what's so interesting when you read through Judges and you go to this cycle again now, which we've already seen, the one thing that's missing from this account is that there is no cry out for the Lord. They're oppressed longer than any other oppressor, but yet there is not a single instance for them crying out to the Lord. So... uh, and for whatever reason, that just didn't happen. There's no cry for deliverance. There's no cry for God to send a deliverer to even save them. Now, how could it be that Israel, oppressed by the Philistines longer than any other oppressor, yet never cries out for deliverance? How is that? Well, remember I told you last week the answer is twofold. First, the Philistines' tactic was not brute force. They didn't come in and just start you know raping and, and pillaging and plundering like the other oppressors. They at a different tactic. They did not come in militarily. What the Philistines did was conquer through assimilation, okay? In other words, they worked very hard at doing whatever they could do to get the sons of Israel to marry their daughters. And once the families were joined together in marriage, then soon after syncretization. What does that mean? That means that they're so blended together they don't you can't tell a there's no distinction between them anymore. And uh, meaning that the things that of God and the commands of God became far less important to them as time marched on. So much so that there really became very little difference between the habits and lifestyles of the Philistines and the habits and the lifestyles lifestyles of the Israelites. They were so blended together. That's why they weren't crying out for help. Secondly, the Philistines had learned to make iron, and thus they made farm implements with iron, which made... Uh, a agrarian society like Israel like the like Israel had a farming community made their work a lot easier than wooden implements they had steel implements that lasted longer and were more effective and secondly they were trading with them for these farm implements and so they were making money on both sides and so not only were their families now joining together but now they were becoming more affluent and so money was rolling in and so they're thinking you know this isn't too bad This isn't too bad. So Israel soon came to rely on them, and with all money-making going on, there was really no anxiousness for this relationship to end. They felt like this was pretty good. So the people were enjoying this time of great affluence, and they liked it. They were so assimilated into the Philistine worldview and lifestyle, they didn't even care if they were delivered. They're like, this is okay. We're all right. This is okay. I mean, yeah, they're, they're bothersome a bit here or there, but it's okay. No cry out at all. We're all right. And what has caused Israelites to be so assimilated they don't uh, they don't they do not even recognize this is the scary part. They are so assimilated into the Philistine worldview that they don't even recognize how far away from God they are. It has become so easy, one compromise at a time. So now they're so blended together they have completely forgotten about God as far as Obeying him, loving him, obedience to him. So we can find the answer here. Now, what what is it that caused him? We find that answer again in verse 1. And I told you last time, here was the main part. It says here in verse 1, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. The problem here, again, remember, was that it was not evil in their eyes. They were quite okay with it. But the issue was that it was not okay in God's eyes. They were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they had become so assimilated with the world that by their own perception, what they were doing was perfectly acceptable. So comfortable in their affluence, so comfortable with their new assimilated families, they have completely reason for themselves that God would be okay with them ignoring him and not obeying him and moving him to a, a lesser position in their life somehow they've convinced themselves that that's okay and that God should be all right with that because they're happy. And that kind of falls into today's thinking, doesn't it? Where happiness now seems to be this this overarching, uh, I want to say meta-narrative, it's this overarching uh, view that that's what God really wants for us. God wants you to be happy no matter what else. So it doesn't really matter what you do, and if you kind of cut corners here and there, that God's okay with it. God, can, can I just lovingly say this to you? I don't want to say that God doesn't care about your happiness. But you know what he cares about? He cares about your holiness. That's what God cares about. He cares about your holiness. And you know what? And, and for uh, young people out here, especially, when you're in a relationship, God cares about your holiness. You want to be happy with someone? Strive for holiness, Happiness is a wonderful byproduct of seeking God's holiness. You want to be happy? Be happy in the Lord. Seek the Lord first, and then happiness will abound. But if you try to seek your own happiness, the only way you can seek your own happiness, I'm going into marriage counseling here, the only way you can seek your own happiness is to manipulate your partner to do the things you want them to do for you. That's selfish. That's outside the purview of what God views as marriage. God views marriage as my wife or my husband's needs are greater than my needs. Not my needs are greater than theirs. That's the worldview of relationships. Okay, I'm going to get off that hobby horse. I'll be here all night on that one. All right. So there's nothing wrong. There's really nothing wrong with what they're doing in their own eyes. And I'm sure maybe that little ping in their conscience, but at the conscious level of day-to-day living, they had really no guilt. No, no real guilt. They had a lot of explanations for why that what they were doing was perfectly okay. But the text does not tell us every rationale for why they didn't care anymore. But we do know that whatever they had decided was that they had decided was not evil was certainly evil in the eyes of God. That part is very clear in our text. But God's not giving up on them, and so he's going to send them a deliverer to stop them from being completely assimilated into the Philistine culture, where you can't tell the difference at all, where his people are so assimilated, and they're not even a people anymore. They're not a people that he's gathered unto himself. They're not a chosen people he's gathered himself. They have now morphed into something between a Philistine and what used to be a God-fearing, God-loving uh, Israelite. They've now changed into something else, and it looks a lot more like the Philistines than it does the Israelites. So in verse 2, God starts to enact his plan, and we pick it up there. There was a certain man of Zora of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. So here, verse 2, Manoah is the father of Samson, and his wife are from the tribe of Dan. Now, when the tribe of Dan moved north, Manoah and his wife remained in that original territory where the Danites were, which put them approximately two miles from the Philistines. And uh, again, conveniently located, providentially of course, right between the Israelites and the Philistines is where Samson is born. For a remaining little couple here that decided not to move with their tribe and stayed there. Now, we also see here that Manoah's wife was barren, which would have been exceedingly difficult, especially in that day. Because uh, to be barren, uh, culturally, would have been viewed as a stigma. You were somehow outside of God's grace. So it was, it was seen as uh, a punishment for sin or something, or a sin of somebody else or a sin of one of your children. So now, unlike the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, the text is silent on this woman's longing for a child. Normally, when a, when a woman is barren, we read it all over Scripture, don't we? She was crying out to the Lord and asking uh, for the fruit of her womb. There are no appeals to God or her husband for a child. But then an angel appears to have come to her at random, reinforcing the fact that the raising up of this deliverer is a gracious work of God, and it's about to begin right here. Look at verse 3. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Every time I read that first part of the angel of the Lord where he reads that, Behold, you are barren, she's got to be going, Yeah, yeah, I kind of know that. Thank you, angel of the Lord. Finally, God intervenes quite literally in this text here. Because the text tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife to tell her that she would have a son. But notice, this is not any angel of the Lord, not just any messenger of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. This is a theophany, right? Theos, God, appearing. This is a God appearing. This is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ coming to announce this wonderful news. Now, the fact that the angel of the Lord is announcing, this is significant because the angel of the Lord has appeared only one other time to announce a birth. And that was whom? That was Hagar, angel of the Lord. Yeah, angel of the Lord. Remember that the angel Gabriel was the angel who announced the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. And although we know that the Lord in another theophany did announce the birth of Isaac as well, he's not referred there. He's, he's, not, he's, he's not referred there as the angel of the Lord, but simply as the Lord. So it's a little trick question there for you. Okay, verses 4 and 5, let's look at those together then. Now, therefore, the angel of the Lord, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. There's a there's a lot down on there, so let's take a look at that. So the Lord appears to Manoah's wife. Incidentally, what's Manoah's wife's name? We don't know, just as Manoah's wife, right? She's Mrs. Manoah, thank you, that's what I call her. Okay. So, uh, Mrs. Manoah tells, uh, the Lord appears to Mrs. Manoah and tells her she would finally have a child, a son. He then proceeds to tell her that the child was to be raised his entire life under a Nazarite vow. Now, what is a Nazarite vow? Well, remember, we looked at this once before. Uh, a couple different times, actually, we we looked at it pretty extensively with the Apostle Paul in Acts 18 and Acts 21. We kind of dug into that, but let's refresh ourselves. Keep your place in Judges. Go back to Numbers chapter six. Numbers chapter six. Now, what are the main stipulations here? And there there are lots of stipulations, but there's a couple. There's a, a few main ones here that I want to point out. So. First of all, that word Nazirite or Nazir in Hebrew means to separate, to separate or separated one. And again, we looked at this pretty deeply in Acts 18 and Acts 21 with the Apostle Paul. But here are some highlights. First, this vow was voluntary. Okay, This was a vow that you voluntarily took on for a very specific purpose and for a designated amount of time. Okay, so let's say like Paul, remember Paul was going on a mission trip, right? So then uh, he would take this vow for like 30 days or he would take this vow for six months or whatever it was. Or very specific. And it was completely voluntary. This is something you would willfully choose to do to separate yourself from the world and to be totally focused on what God has called you to do. So first is this vow was voluntary, usually for a specific amount of time. But how about Samson? Samson's vow is for how long? His life. Very good. Uh, And then, uh, you know, who else else had lifelong dedications to the Lord? Who else was dedicated to the Lord their entire life? Samuel. Very good. So Samuel's not technically a Nazarite, but, boy, he he really kind of fits all of the criteria, does he not? Or at least from the point of being dedicated to the Lord for life. So you have Samson, Samuel, and then one more in the New Testament— John the Baptist. Thank you very much. Ding, ding. Ten points to the lady in the front row there. All right, very good. So first, the vow was voluntary, usually for a specific amount of time, but Samson's is for his whole life. Secondly, it was a special vow of separation and devotion to God, usually connected with a special mission or act of service. Now, our text hasn't told us specifically what that is yet, but it's about to. Thirdly, while under the vow... The person could not drink anything made from the vine. You see that in Numbers 6, verses 3 and 4. He shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. Nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. And I think this was partly practical, the idea of being a dedicated person doesn't need to have their mind muddled with the effects of alcohol. Remember that a lot of wine was uh, drank in day because the water was so poor, right? So remember Paul telling Timothy, drink some wine for your stomach and so on because the there were so many diseases in the water. It's not like that a filtration system. Matter of fact, I'd probably ruin your dinner if I told you exactly how bad the water was. So most people drank wine and then they would dilute it down for their regular drinking. But they were not to do this. They were not to. So I think part of that was just practical, but perhaps another significant part of it was a reminder of how separated and devoted they are to God. So while everybody else is doing this, you're not. Why not? Because I'm separated and devoted to God for this very purpose. So it was kind of a reminder every day. So when other people are partaking of wine at meals or at festive functions or at weddings or at festivals or at feasts, not you, not you, because you have a very specific mission for God that you have willfully chosen. Fourth, they could not cut their hair. We see that in verse five and number six. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. That was an outward symbol that clearly marked that they were under a vow. Right, so you would see somebody with this long hair and say, "Wow, they must be doing a Nazarite vow," because it would have been uncommon. So at the conclusion of the vow, then, they would shave their head and then present the cut hair at the temple within 30 days. Right? Showing that the vow was over. And Then they would make other sacrifices and so on. And lastly, they could not come in contact with a dead body. See that in verses 6 and 7 of Numbers 6. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He should not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother for his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. So being holy, consecrated, set apart for the Lord's service, and then coming in contact with a dead body would render them unclean and unable to worship, unable to fulfill their vow. They were supposed to be holy, separated, consecrated, and now they're unclean. Now, some of you Bible scholars here back in our text in Judges 13, you may have noticed that in addition to the standard prohibitions, the ones we just talked about, notice that he the Lord adds this prohibition of any unclean food for the child's mother during her pregnancy. Did you catch that? Now, actually, all Israelites are subject to this law, right? They're all not supposed to eat foods that are unclean, right? That's part of the law. But given the spiritual condition of the nation as a whole, this law, I think like many others, has been just kind of generally one of those that just faded away. Start making a little compromise here. Hey, our Philistine brothers, they eat this food all the time. They're seafaring people. Why can't we eat some of these foods? I mean, that's what they eat. And now that we're together in one family, we'll just start eating those things, even though God prohibited it. They, they start compromising. So the fact that the woman needed to be reminded of this law may suggest that many in this household had already fallen away from obedience to the law. They're already way outside, all through compromises. And notice also that the divine messenger here highlights the extraordinary attention to detail with which this woman and her son are to conduct their lives. Do you notice this? It's very rigid. Here's the things you shall do before he's even born. Here's the things you can eat. Here's the things you can't eat do this, do this, do this, whatever you do, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. That, He's not even born yet. Just tell him this is what's going to happen. Notice this attention to detail. And lastly, notice that just like the uniqueness of his announcement of his birth, we also have a uniqueness associated with being anointed as a Nazarite before he's even born, joining John the Baptist in that pretty rare group. They've got some pretty thin air which would signify to us that God has a very specific plan for Samson, even before he's born. Now, one last thing to note here. Notice that in the last half of verse 5, that Samson's service, what is this mission that he's supposed to do? Is to do what? Begin to deliver the Israelites. You notice that? He's not to deliver the Israelites. He's to begin the deliverance from the hands of the Philistines. It's interesting that the prophetic word about his service is not that Samson would deliver them, but that he would begin to deliver them. Now, we know, right, that the Philistines would continue to hold the Israelites in oppression through their affluence and assimilation for many, many years after Solomon. In fact, their rule wouldn't be broken until the Battle of Mitzpah in 1 Samuel 7, which is a long way away yet. So this probably happens about midway in that 40-year rule. Samson then began the deliverance from the Philistines, but the final victory would need the work of Samuel in 1 Samuel 7, and then finally David in 2 Samuel 5, before their oppression is is completely eradicated. Now I want to pause here and make some observations, whatever little time we have left here, about what we've studied so far and why it's significant. And what is happening both in this time that we're reading about and in judges in judges and then for us today. First, it's and this is very obvious in the text, but it's so often lost in today's politically charged environment. As I stated earlier, Manoah's wife's conduct and prenatal care were required because her child would be a Nazarite from birth. Well, it's not difficult to conclude that God regarded this woman's baby as a child, or which we often today call a fetus, but it's a child. He's, God is given instructions for a human child in this woman's womb, not a fetus. Life begins in the womb at conception. It's just that simple. Here you go, in God's words. So the words of the angel of the Lord make that very clear. It's easy to skip over that. But I just want to point that out. Secondly... I want you to notice that God had set Samson apart for this special mission before he's even born. That this work was prepared beforehand, before he's even born. And it kind of reminds me of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1:5 Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, I set you apart. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. He's talking about a Jeremiah. He's telling Jeremiah, before you were even born, this is what you were going to do. And just like Jeremiah, Samson's mission is already planned before he's even born. He's going to begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. So clearly, as God sets Samson apart here, even before he's born for this very special purpose, But now let me ask you this. If that's all true, and it is because it's in our text, then why is it so essential that he be a Nazarite? Can't God do that without him having to be a Nazarite? I mean, what's the significance of being a Nazarite in all of this? Okay. All right, anybody else? I'm kidding. Okay, here we go. Same as Jesus, so set aside. All right, before time begins. All right. Why is it so essential, right? Why is it so essential that even his mother must follow very strict guidelines and emphasize consecration before the Lord? In essence, the focus of all of these restrictions is to keep Samson from anything that would prohibit his fellowship with the Lord. See, Samson's real strength is going to come with how close he is to the Lord. That's where his strength is going to be. All of these actions are meaningless if they're not truly representative of an inner life of dedication. doesn't matter if I let my hair grow grow down to the floor, if it's supposed to be a symbol of my consecration to God, if I don't know God. I mean, that's a lot like carrying my Bible around but never opening it. Or waving it in front of a crowd, large crowd, and saying, this is my Bible, and they're never looking at it as I preach, right? So it would be all the same things. Some of you caught that. Okay. And notice that these Nazarene restrictions were not only before he was born, they're also through his entire life. God is clearly making a statement that Samson is to be separated from the world, that the way that the Israelites will be delivered from assimilation is to bring in a deliverer who's completely separated from the world for God's purpose. Do you notice that? Samson was to be a man who was dedicated to the Lord his entire life, from birth to death. And this is so important that even his mother had to refrain from anything that might deem him unclean before he's even born. That he's not tainted in any way. In any shape. Isn't it amazing that the Lord delivers Israel from their blindness to their assimilation without them even asking for deliverance? Because he knows what they need. Even though they don't see it themselves. They're so blinded. They've made so many compromises in their life now. They can't even tell how far away they are from God. And God's solution is to bring in somebody who is to be separated unto God as the antidote for their assimilation. Very interesting. And the way he does that, of course, is to identify, and ensure that the solution to their assimilation is to separate one from amongst them and to break up this assimilation and begin the deliverance of oppression. And the Lord calls upon us today much the same way. You see, we too have had works prepared for us before time began. And we also are consecrated and separated unto the Lord. And we're consecrated and separated from the world. We're in the world, but we're not of this world. And we do that to accomplish the purposes of our Lord. And yet we, like Samson, right, we are called to be in the world to accomplish the mission. So we are to be in the world, but not of the world. How do we accomplish this? Well, some Christians attempt to do this by separating themselves from the world entirely. Well, here's how I'll do it. We won't let any outside influence into our church at all. We'll just put a big bubble around our church, and if it looks like they may not be a good Christian, keep them out. That's one approach. They believe by this action alone they are fulfilling God's will for their lives. However, completely cutting yourself off from all contact from the world makes it really difficult for you to do something called the Great Commission, which you're all commanded to do, incidentally. In fact, Christians can be so closed off to the world in fear that the world's influences may contaminate them that they have effectively eliminated outreach of any form in their church at all. They pray that God would send them the lost, but deep down, they're really hoping God would just send them some good Christian folks to fill up their church. And this not only flies in the face of the Great Commission, it's also no guarantee that just because people are separated that they will live holy, sanctified, and consecrated lives for the Lord. But we hear that all the time, don't we? These are supposed to be the people who have separated themselves under the Lord, and then we see that the church is formed in just like the world. Secondly, this type of approach to separation also naturally progresses to legalism. Before you know it, there's one rule after another, after another, after another, to make sure separation happens. But legalism doesn't ensure consecration any more than isolation does. And it certainly does not give you a passion and love for the lost. On the other side of the pendulum, some Christians seek assimilation in the world so they can win people for the Lord. But assimilation does not produce a sanctified life any more than isolation or legalism does. In fact, it just turns into plain old worldliness before you know it. And worldliness fails to provide any distinction between the church and the world. And the end result is that the lost do not see any reason to be separated unto Christ because they're already living and choosing to live as they please. And if you say that becoming a Christian means I get to do the same thing, then why do I need to be in your church? There's nothing different about you. There's nothing here that seems different from the world. So worldliness does not look a lot different than the life they're already living. Beloved, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be salt and light in the world. And salt, as salt, we're called to be the preservative in this world. We are to be used by the Lord to keep people of this world from being corrupted by the devastating effects of sin and fleshly desires. And as light, our actions are to shine before the world. Shine before the world so that men will glorify God because of the way that we live our lives. They will look at us and see Christ in the way that we live our lives. Again, beloved, we are to be in this world but not of this world. And our example is to be Christ. What did Jesus do? Well, he loved sinners. He loved sinners. Enough to share the gospel with them. He always sought their salvation through the sharing of the gospel. And if that meant some of his friends were sinners and tax collectors before they became disciples, then so be it. He was reaching out to them. And that didn't affect the way that Jesus lived his life, did it? He still lived a perfectly sinless life while reaching out to those that were lost. The Pharisees couldn't understand that. How can you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus said, they're the ones that need the physician. That's why I'm there. Unfortunately, that's not the approach that many Christians take today, but it is the example that Jesus provided for us to follow. We cannot witness to the lost if we isolate ourselves from them, nor can we accomplish this through legalism or assimilation. Our approach needs to be the same as Christ's. and That's why we have been separated for Christ's purposes as well. And although Samson will struggle mightily in this area, we follow the one who provided the example for us all to follow, and he did it perfectly. We are to be in this world, but not of this world. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the challenge of your word. I We look at this life of Samson, Lord, and we see these parents who, Lord, there's very strict restrictions on Samson's mother. And we can see, Lord, that, there, that there's a very special purpose for Samson and that these restrictions, these guidelines, this Nazarite uh, vow, Lord, is to separate Samson for your service. But, Lord, we also have been separated unto you for service. We also, Lord, need to have a willing and obedient heart for you. We also, Lord, are in this world but not of this world. Help us, Lord, not to lose our passion for the lost, not to isolate ourselves so much, Lord, that we, we don't witness to anybody. Help us not to develop so many rules and regulations of what we can and can't do that we don't have a burden for the lost anymore. And help us, Lord, not to assimilate and try so hard to look like the world that there's no distinction between your church and the world. None of those approaches, Lord, all of those are condemned in Scripture. But yet we have an example from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, of how to how we're supposed to do it. We are to love the lost, love them enough to share the gospel, continue reaching out to them so that they too may know you the way we know you, Lord. Help us to be that kind of church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.